Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Work Party, the podcast where we are throwing out the rule book and bringing you real talk and hot takes on what is happening in the working world right now, because life moves fast. If we've learned anything from the past few years, it's that the only constant is change, and we can't pretend everything is status quo. I'm your host, Jacqueline Johnson, and it's Hot Take Time, where we ask guests to let us in on a fresh POV that they feel super passionate about. From spicy money talk to unexpected relationship advice, love them or hate them, agree or disagree, these piping hot and sometimes controversial takes will get you thinking. So let's get into it. In a world that's often felt like an exclusive men's club when it comes to finances, millennial investor and entrepreneur Simran Kaur is changing the conversation around women and investing. With her platform, Girls That Invest, Forbes 30 Under 30 honoree is kicking those club doors open and sharing her investment wisdom in a way that's approachable and accessible. And trust me, she's a lot to share. Core once turned an $8,000 investment into $1.3 million. I can't wait to hear this story. What started with a social media platform called Girls That Invest has evolved into a powerful community of educational courses, a best-selling book, and a popular podcast that has drawn a community of over 300,000 and counting. Together with her co-founder, she's built a seven-figure business dedicated to helping women take the reins on their finances. Today, she's here to share her hot take and dive into financial advice for entrepreneurs. So welcome, Simran. Thank you for having me. What a kind introduction. Of course. Well, I'm so excited to have you on the show today. You've achieved a lot by a very young age, and your journey in the world of investment is inspiring. So I'm sure you have plenty of stories, but first, let's get your hot take. My hot take as a VC investor, as an angel investor, is that you do not have to be super smart to be super good at investing. I think it is this huge misconception, and I'm just excited to talk about it. Yes, because I do think there is so much unnecessary complications that people present when it comes to investing to the point where they kind of don't want you to know a lot. So you were a retail investor, and this is how you got started. Yes. So when I began, I remember thinking, you know, I had all these misconceptions about investing. The first misconception is that you have to be very rich. Mm -hmm. Um, The second misconception is that the market is like gambling. And look, I'm not a gambler. I'm very safe and steady. And I don't like taking on too much risk. And the third misconception I had is that it is something that you do when you're older and you're established Mm -hmm. and you have the house and the boat and you've exited. And it took me a long time to realize investing is something that you do to gain wealth. It's not something that you do once you have wealth. 
I, I feel like I would have believed all those misconceptions, too. I think I actually that's sort of the narrative people perpetuate. So how did you start to break apart these f- falsehoods, essentially? When I was in university or college, I remember our um, sort of curriculum encouraged us to take papers outside of our degree. And so before my world of investing, I was an optometrist, a completely different life. I love this. My eyes are dilated right now. They look insane. You might have noticed. I did. (laughs) (laughs) She was like, this girl is crazy. No, I had a doctor's or an eye appointment today and literally got them dilated and couldn't see up until like two hours ago. This must be very bright for you right now. (laughs) (laughs) They're getting better, but I'm just excited I can read and, and be here with you. So this is a full circle moment. Continue. And so in our university, they encourage us to take papers outside of core curriculum. And I took some financial papers and I looked at international business. And then I went off and studied financial markets. And when I read into it, I was like, oh, this stuff is really easy. And I grew up being told, you know, money is hard. And there were words that I never understood, jargon terminology that kind of felt like it was made to not keep me out, but it did feel that Mm -hmm. way, sort of barriers. Even things like, you know, you'd read online, this company raised 800 million in capital. And I'd be like, wow, what does that mean? Capital just means money. Mm-hmm. They just raised money. It was no different to the girl guides going out there with their biscuits and making money off things. And when that all started to break down, first I was surprised and then I got angry. Mm. And I got really upset because I just thought, wow, for so long, I just thought the stuff is hard, investing is difficult, the share market is like what you see on Wolf of Wall Street. Mm-hmm. And it is nothing like that. I'm so excited to dive into this because I think it's such a good topic. I actually saw the movie Dumb Money. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the Dumb Money movie is about uh, GameStop and really about retail investors, about you know the everyday person who's buying and selling stocks kind of reclaiming control of the stock market, which is typically because of these terms and jargon, all these things is run by, you know, the big the big bears, essentially, right? Like the UBSs, the Bank of America, whatever, all the hedge funds, all those things like who are, you know, dialing in and having algorithms and machines. So what would you say is the first step someone should take if they're interested in becoming an investor? I think the first step that has really helped me in my journey and something that we talk about a lot on our podcast and our community when we run events is we say, hey, one of the things that people think they need to do is they need to pick winning stocks. And Mm. we grow up being told, you know, you go to a barbecue and if you bring up the share market, there's always one uncle that says, oh, you know, here's the next big thing. I think this is going to do really well. This share you should jump into or this Bitcoin equivalent you should jump into. And the truth is majority of investors make their money not by picking and choosing one winning stock, but by diversifying their investments. And we're so much better off saying, all right, well, I've got $1,000 or I've got $100. I'm going to put it in a fund rather than let me try and pick two companies that I think are going to do really well. Because that's like saying, I'm going to go on two dates and I'm going to marry one of them. Mm. Why why would you sort of define everything so quickly? I love that. That's a great analogy. And so can you explain what a fund is? Like if you're investing in like a mutual fund or bonds or anything like that, to kind of break down the difference. Of course, the jargon, again, this used to confuse me. I used to think that an investment portfolio was a clear file that you had and that you had individual companies in this folder. So I am. I need to start off by saying I was definitely in this position where I knew none of these terminologies. So don't feel bad if, if you're thinking, gosh, this doesn't make sense. But firstly, you've got individual shares and shares are just in simple terms, owning a little part of a company. So you might have shares of Google and it just means that you own a little part of it, it might be worth $100 and you hope that in 10 years it's worth 150 
But that's kind of hard to pick and choose individual companies. So then people have funds, which are baskets, and a basket can be filled with lots of different individual companies. Sometimes you have big baskets that are filled with hundreds, if not thousands of companies. Something like an S&P 500 fund is one of the world's most popular baskets, and that's the top 500 companies in the state. So you've got Apple, you've got Amazon, you've got Tesla, you've got the little guys, you've got the big guys. Um, And when you invest, let's say, $100 into that basket, then your $100 is spread across all 500 companies or however many Mm -hmm. there are. And so that makes things a little bit easier. Yeah, a little less risky, too, it feels like, than putting all your eggs in one Google basket, even though Google might not be risky. Who knows? Did you know that you can tell the difference between a laboratory-grown diamond and a natural diamond? Laboratory-grown diamonds are mass-produced in factories in just a few weeks and are easily detected due to their distinct patterns. On the other hand, natural diamonds are over a billion years old and support the livelihoods of over 10 million people worldwide. The positive impact of natural diamonds is widespread, and around 80% of the value of every rough diamond remains in local communities and supports infrastructure, healthcare, education, and environmental protection. So next time you're thinking of celebrating a special moment in your life, remember that your natural diamond also protects vulnerable wildlife species and brings prosperity to many less fortunate communities around the world. For more information, visit naturaldiamonds.com. So obviously, you know, you've taken this interest in finance and and anger around investing and turned it into this amazing platform and become an entrepreneur yourself. So how would you rank the top three qualities of a successful entrepreneur? I think a successful entrepreneur, if I had to start this sort of journey again, would be someone that stays in their lane and keeps focused on one thing. What I mean by that is I used to get shiny object syndrome mm-hmm. and I would look around at what other people are doing and I'd be like, oh my God, they've got a YouTube channel. Maybe I should have that. Oh my goodness, they're doing events. Maybe we should do events. And I had to say, look, I'm good at podcasting. I'm good at Instagram. Just stick to those two things. And that really helped. I think the second thing in this day and age that I would do differently is get comfortable with being on video. I think a lot mm. of founders feel that their product itself um, or the mission itself is enough. But in all the work that we've gotten, when we talk to our customers and we talk to our audience and we ask them why us, they say relatability. Mm. They don't say the information. I thought it was the information that we were teaching. <laughs> like, I think we're giving great information. but Yes, information came number two. Relatability was the first thing. People want to support brands that they love and they know and they can see the founder and they can feel connected. And I think the third thing that really has helped in our journey is being extremely vulnerable. We Mm -hmm. don't just share our wins, we share our lows. We don't just share the salaries that we have because we're very transparent on our platform. We don't just share the income the company makes, but we share the downturns as well. And Mm -hmm. I think that's really important in Definitely. this day and age. So tell me about this investment you made that turned into $1.3 million. I'm so curious. <laughs> My investment journey began when I was trying to find individual companies to invest in, and I realized this isn't working. Let's just put all of my money into funds. And funds, I was like, there's more diversity. I'm going to be able to see a few more jumps. And then I would say 90% of it was in that. And then 10% of it, I started seeing some online communities talking about certain companies. And one of them was Tesla. And this was pre-COVID. This was pre-sort of everyone jumping into the market. And in March 2020, on the 13th of March, the market dropped. 
And if you know about the financial literacy behind investing, you know this is a great thing. It's like if you go and want to buy Touch's skincare and it's down 20%, you're like, this is a sale because I know it will come back up and I can sell it for more later. Mm-hmm. So I jumped in, I put in a lot more money than um, I usually do because I usually invest a little bit every month. And I was comfortable with that risk because in my head I knew the market would rebound. Yeah. And lo and behold, within three months, not only did the market rebound, it went up to have one one of its biggest bull runs um, in a very long time. And a bull run is just a jargon term of saying it just kept going up. Mm -hmm. Amazing. And so you were able to capitalize on that investment. I was able to capitalize on that investment. I was able to buy my first house. Like It was a a great journey. Thank you. So what's your philosophy on hold versus sell? I believe in this sort of reverse engineering with your investments. So rather than trying to decide, well, this company's gone up, maybe I should sell it. I like to look at goals. And so my goal was I want to have enough money for a home deposit. And once that goal is Mm -hmm. reached, then I'll sell my investments as Mm -hmm. opposed to like, I don't want to spend all my time looking at the markets. I don't want to spend all my time doing research. I just want to know what I'm investing in, put it in every month and wait for the goal. Yeah, I love that. I think that's really smart. Like give yourself a number. And then when you hit it, then cash out, not just like, well, maybe it'll go up, maybe it'll go up. It might, but like you got to cash out at some point. So let's pivot to the incredible work you're doing with Girls That Invest and get into some financial advice. So before we dive in, I want to highlight the eye-opening statistic from your site that really underlines the why behind your brand and why you started. Mm -hmm. Men worldwide typically hold 50% more wealth than women. We don't get a chance to catch up if only 15 to 25% of women are investing. So investing is really what creates wealth. So tell us about launching Girls That Invest. And did you envision it getting as big as it is today? I remember launching Girls That Invest in 2020 in my bedroom. I was I had flatmates or roommates. And I remember I would ask them to be quiet for two hours while I recorded my podcast. <laughs> I was like, hey, guys, do you mind not, you know, washing your dishes and like clanking in the background? And it was a very grassroots journey. And if someone had said to me, hey, this in two years time is going to make you a Forbes 30 under 30. You're going to make multiple millions off the back of this. You're going to travel the world, do a TED talk, write a best selling book, speak at the House of Parliament on International Women's Day for the UK. Like I would not have expected it. But that is why I am so passionate about saying to female founders and founders in general, like, just start. Mm. Because you don't need a lot. But starting, let us run to this sort of journey that we've gotten ourselves into. It wouldn't have happened if we waited until, you know, everything felt perfect. Yeah, absolutely. I am such a big fan of Start By Starting. I think it's such great advice. Thinking about transforming your career, but don't know where to start? Well, guess what? It's never too late to make the change. And the good news is there are some incredible programs out there to help you kickstart your journey. Sometimes you just need the right tools to get started. If you're eyeing the world of business and want to pave your way to success, you'll want to keep listening. Meet Georgia Tech's Scheller's full-time evening and executive MBA programs, consistently ranked top 20 in the nation. In fact, the evening MBA programs is the number one part-time MBA program in Georgia. Whether you're interested in international business, sustainability, or the ins and outs of the supply chain, Scheller has you covered with 14 different concentrations to choose from. Scheller's full-time MBA program is ranked number one amongst top business schools when comparing total tuition costs with average starting salary. Tuition is over 50% lower than other comparably ranked programs. Scheller also offers scholarships and fellowship opportunities to women, making an investment in you and your MBA more accessible. 
They're all about career transformation. Scheller's MBA Career Services are ranked top five in the world six years running. Their advisors can assist you through one-on-one coaching, interview prep, resumes, and career development workshops, career fairs, and so much more. Plus, with its prime location in Atlanta's Tech Square, you have so many opportunities to gain real-world experience through practicums, projects, and internships. Women are leaders in the Scheller community and have many opportunities to build their leadership skills through student-led clubs, committees, events, and leadership development programs. At Scheller's, it's not just about professional growth, it's about personal transformation. Empower yourself with the essential tools to confidently lead at the crossroads of business and technology. Visit gtmbawomen.com to learn more about Georgia Tech Scheller's MBA programs. So what would you say is the most common question you get from your audience? I think the most common question we get when it comes to investing is, look, I've got a little bit of money. I've got $1,000 saved up. Where do I put it? And our answer to that is always, rather than, again, looking at that individual company or even fund, decide your goal. Mm. And when you have a goal in mind, you can then decide and look at all the different investment classes and types that would suit you. So if you say, I'd like to invest for something that I want to pull out for a home deposit in five years' time, you're probably not going to be able to take on such risky investments because mm. that's a very short time frame right. versus the girl that says, hey, look, I'm investing so that I can retire at 50 rather than 65. That gives me another 20 years. Well, she's got a little bit more time on her hands so she can take on more risky investments. Mm-hmm. So once you know what you're investing for and how much, you then can sort of work backwards and go, okay, well, individual companies might be difficult, but maybe bonds, which are when I invest and put my money and give it to a government or a company and they give it back to me with like a 2 to 3% return. That's not very high risk, but it's not very high reward either. And maybe that's yeah, yeah. So long game, short game, high risk, low risk, kind of figuring out where you sit in those buckets. Absolutely. I love that. So when someone's venturing out into their own business, sort of like yourself, how did you think about funding your business? Were you ever interested in venture capital? Did you self-fund? You know, tell us about kind of launching that. At the start, I did not understand how someone like myself, who looked like myself, who sounded like myself, I was quite young at the time, could get capital at all in any capacity. There were grants available that I didn't even know existed. And that is why I'm so passionate about the things that we do in podcasts like this, where these conversations get to happen. So all of it was self-funded. Mm. We would use our nine, we always say our nine to five was our first investor. Yeah, And we would just take money from our jobs and put it into the business. I remember when I started, the microphones we used were $200 Blue Yeti microphones. Terrible audio <laughs> quality if you ever go back and listen to the first episode, which we've kept up. And my idea behind that was If I start with my own money, every dollar that I have, I will be very careful where I spend it. Right. And that's not to say you can't do that if you get funding or if you're venture backed, but it just made me be very scrappy. And that has been something that I think has helped in our success. I totally agree. I mean, I think, you know, even if you are the most scrappy individual, getting that money in your bank account is from a venture capitalist by proxy, like you have to spend that money, right? Like there, it's not like you can hold back and like make this and like that money when you go out and pitch for that money is allocated, right? Mm-hmm. So I think there is something about being scrappy, being able to pivot, make your own decisions, like pull the trigger on smaller expenses, bigger expenses, like when you have that capital. So would you say there's a specific amount of money you should have saved up when you take the leap to start your business? 
the leap for me when I went all in, when it went away from being like a side hustle, a fun thing we were mm-hmm. doing after work to something that I wanted to quit my job and take full time. I often say to founders, you know, if you've got at least six months of living expenses or one year of living expenses saved up, that gives you a one year sort of lead up or runway where you can just put everything that you have Mm. into it. You've got enough money to cover your rent, your food, your utilities, maybe a little bit of food, maybe a little bit of travel, but nothing too crazy. And once I knew what that number was for me, it was um, around... 70,000 at the time that was my salary and once I got to that amount I was like okay I have no excuse I have a year's worth of money saved up let's do this and I still struggle to quit my job yeah and I'm I'm sure I I want to stress that you even when you have the money you might say to yourself okay I'll, I'll do it I'll quit I'll do it properly when I have this total amount of money and even when that money comes you're still going to struggle. I had to make a pros and cons list and talk to all my friends. And I sounded like that friend that was in a bad relationship. They would just be like, guys, should I should I leave him? I've got a pros and cons list. And they were like, quit your job. And it took me three or four months of hearing that from all my friends, mm-hmm. being that annoying person, and then eventually taking it all time. I love that. Yeah. You kind of need that push off the cliff, I feel like. I had to have the exact same thing. So what are some financial tools you recommend for business owners? Like, what's your tech stack look like? Like, what are the things that you use for your personal finance and maybe professional? I highly recommend having some software. There's so many out there, but some software system where you can individually code every expense in your business Mm -hmm. and be able to see what's called a profit and loss or a P&L sheet. And if you don't know what that means, just talk to your accountant. If you don't have an accountant, there's so many free tools and softwares. You don't have to spend an arm and a leg to Mm -hmm. get started. But every month I will look at that sheet and it just allows me to track what are we bringing in? Where are we spending our money? Okay, are we spending maybe a little? We like to give gifts a lot. So <laughs> if someone does something really kind for us, we'll send them flowers. And sometimes we send, you know, a few too many bouquets. And you almost just have to be like, okay. The flower budget's high. The flower budget <laughs> is really high this month. Listen, I love that. I think that's great. I think that that flower budget will return itself, though. There'll be a return on those investments. Absolutely. And look, when you're not VC backed, you don't have to explain the flower budget. But in saying that, it's so helpful, I think, to track your expenses. And we do the same with our personal lives. Mm -hmm. Like I track, I don't want to say every dollar, but I track roughly where my money goes. Because if you know it and you can track it, you can change it. Yes, that's so true. It's so true. So what are some signs that you're making a good financial decision with your business? And like, what's a red flag when it comes to that? I think signs when you're making a good financial decision in your business is, in my opinion, being able to see your goals being reached and being able to measure it. So for a long time, we didn't measure anything. Mm. And for a long time, it was, well, the Instagram followers are up, the reels look good, the courses that we sell are, are making money and that's that's working, right? That should be enough. But as your business scales, and this was something that was really hard for me to understand, your profit margins drop the bigger you get. Mm. And that was really hard for me to wrap my yeah. head around. Even though from a dollar figure, you make more money as you grow. Let's say you start off and you have a million dollars in revenue and $800,000 in profit. But when you get to $10 million in revenue, your profit isn't 90% or 80% anymore. Mm-mm. It's smaller. And 
I found that that was really hard to wrap my head around and I found it was really hard to wrap my head around. You do need to ask for help. You do need to get more people in. Mm -hmm. You can't do it all by yourself. Mm -hmm. I think a red flag is when you become the bottleneck and you say, oh my God, no, let me just do it all on my own. Let me save money. It just doesn't work long term. Yeah, no, that's so true. And I've definitely felt that pain. So how big is the team now? We have five people. Five people. Which I think is still pretty lean. Yeah. Anything under 10 is the sweet spot. I I loved under 10. Yes. When you get to 30, it's like a, a whole different ball game. I remember I was listening to the co-founder of Canva. He was doing a talk a few weeks ago and he said after they hit, I think it was 100 employees, every employee he would take out to ice cream and get to know them. And eventually he said, after 100, you just can't do that yeah. anymore. Yeah, no, it, it definitely is a different, a different vibe. I'm sure really cool in some ways and then really mm. like not cooler and personal and others. <laughs> but five people is amazing. And so what have been the lessons you've learned in growing a multi-million dollar business? The lessons I have learned, I think it just comes down to it's not as hard as it looks. Mm. And and I know that sounds really maybe silly or oversimplifying things, but it is not as hard as it looks. If you have a great idea, a great product, and you are constantly asking for feedback, how can you not succeed, in my opinion. Like if you have something that's rough, but you're talking to your consumers every day and you're saying, hey, do you like this? What can we do to make it better? We do our courses and our courses run over six weeks. And every single week when we put out a video, we have a little box for feedback and we say, what could we change to make next week's learnings better? And once someone said, you play with your hair too much in the video recording. So I addressed it in the next one. I was like, look, my hair's tied up. I won't touch it. Oh my um, gosh, that's hilarious. Another one was like, you know, when you talk, you move your hands around too much and you hit the microphone. All these little things, I think 1% improvements in your business, whether it's a product or the podcast or the socials, if you continue to try and listen People, I think, respect a business that's listening and trying to be mm. better. And you just naturally are always on a path for betterment. And I think those two just complement each other. 100%. So what's next for the platform? What are you excited about? What are you guys working on? What's next? I think for us, it's con- just continuing to grow the mission, You know, continuing to get more money in the hands of women, continuing to say, hey, look, investing is not hard. It is something really simple. We can all do it. We've started talking more about growing businesses online. We've started talking about side hustles more. Mm -hmm. But I think the core focus is you can be an investor today. You can get started with $10, with $100. It is not just reserved for the people that historically only invested people in suits, people of certain demographics. It's it's changing. I love that. Well, you guys are doing such an amazing job of empowering women and giving them that amazing information they need to make that first investment. So can you tell everyone where they can follow you and learn more about Girls That Invest? Well, if you're interested, we've got our podcast, Girls That Invest, yes, yes. our Instagram account in the same name. And we've got our book, Girls That Invest, which has hit bestsellers around Yay. the world. We've been very lucky. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work Party. If you like what you heard, follow, leave a review, rate the pod, or slide into my DMs. Check out our membership program, Insiders, designed for go-getters and game changers like you. Sign up today at createcultivate.com. Follow us at Work Party and at Jacqueline R. Johnson on all platforms. And be sure to head to createcultivate.com to keep up with all the latest events, content, and community designed to help you level up your life and career.
Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.